Greetings to you in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. This is the Sunday School Podcast for Easter Sunday, April 9th, 2023. And although we don't have Sunday School this day, still want to go over that gospel reading for Easter Sunday, the resurrection of our Lord, from Matthew 28, verses 1 through 10. Because soon we get to rejoice and declare that Christ is risen indeed. So with the Sunday of the Passion, our gospel reading concluded in Matthew 27 with Jesus' body laid in the tomb. Witnessed by some of the women who had followed him. And those women in Matthew 27 included two Marys, Mary Magdalene and The other Mary, she's termed, Um, they saw Jesus die in chapter 27, verse 56, and they saw where he was buried in 27, verse 61. And as our text begins with Matthew 28, verse 1, we read, Now after the Sabbath, toward the dawn of the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to see the tomb. So Jesus dies on Friday, and once the sun sets on Friday, the Sabbath has begun. It's a high Sabbath because it's the Passover Sabbath, and no one is allowed to do work on the Sabbath day, and that includes journeying, traveling, walking to destinations, and so Saturday, the Sabbath is a day of rest, for Jesus is a day of rest because redemption is one. For the Marys, it's a day of rest because they're not allowed to do anything. And at this point, they have no hope of the resurrection. In fact, we read that now that the Sabbath is over, and now that the light is dawning on the new day, They make their way toward the tomb. And they expect to see the tomb and nothing more than that. They are not going in a hope of the resurrection. We know from the other Gospels they go with spices to prepare the body for permanent burial. But at this point, they go to see the tomb. And there are two barriers that will keep them from the body of Jesus. One is the large stone that was rolled across the mouth of the tomb. And the other is the guard that has been set up by the the chief priests and the Pharisees with Pilate's authority to make sure that nobody steals the body from the tomb. All right, so verse 1, Now after the Sabbath, toward the dawn of the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to see the tomb. And behold, there was a great earthquake, for an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone and sat on it. His appearance was like lightning, and his clothing white as snow. And for fear of him, the guards trembled and became like dead men. So, when Jesus died... There was an earthquake in chapter 27, verse 51. 
And, and that earthquake had significant consequences. We read that, that rocks split because of this earthquake, that, that tombs were open and saints came out and, and wandered into the city. So that was a significant earthquake when Jesus died. However, this one is called a great earthquake. So this one has, has more power. It has more significance of nothing else. And this earthquake announces right off the bat that the story of Jesus is not over. This is not just a matter of visiting a tomb to pay respects to one who has died and is no more. But the momentum is still building. Something happened on Good Friday that is still having an effect now. And so the earthquake is great. And the story of Jesus is not over. And Matthew tells us this earthquake is caused by the angel's descent. So, you know, I, I, think of, I think of one of the more recent Superman movies where Superman lands on the ground and, and the ground shakes around him because of his, his power as a superhero. Here, the angel descends from heaven and, and there's a great earthquake to note that he has come. Angels have been around throughout the Gospel of Matthew, just very, very low-key. In the early chapters of Matthew, say Matthew 1 and 2, the angels appeared to Joseph in dreams to speak to him. So, so when Joseph balks at marrying Mary because she is with child, an angel tells him that she is born with the Savior, the Son of God, and, and um, they will call his name Jesus. And this fulfills a prophecy that he is Emmanuel, God with us. When Herod wants to kill the baby, um, and they, or angels warn Joseph to take mother and child to Egypt, and then they tell him to return again. And when Jesus is tempted in the wilderness, angels minister to Jesus when the temptation is over. So throughout what we would call the humiliation of Jesus, which means throughout the time that Jesus is concealing his power and going about his life in appearances as just a normal human being who can work wonders, as, as Jesus lives this low-key life called his humiliation, his angels are kind of living this low-key life as well. But now on the day of resurrection, there is nothing, nothing subtle about this angel. This angel descends from heaven, causing an earthquake, and now the gloves are off. The angel single-handedly rolls back this stone, which is huge enough to cover the mouth of a tomb. So this is not something that just you or I could do by ourselves. So the angel rolls back the, the stone, and then he, he sits on it like, that was nothing. This is an announcement of victory. Nothing can stand in the way of Jesus. And then the guards, seeing the angel, tremble and become like dead men. Now, these guards are representatives of the, the civil authorities, right? So, so the, uh, the Sanhedrin called for Jesus' death. Pilate issued and executed the, the death sentence. And so these guards represent um, the civil powers of the world who opposed Jesus and had him crucified, and now these guards representing them are trembling like, and then become like dead men on the ground. 
which is a reminder that um, despite the best efforts of the world to oppose Jesus, every knee shall bow, every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. So when Matthew 28 begins, there are two things to keep the women from from looking into the tomb. Um, One is the stone, the other is the guards. The angel descends, the earth shakes, the stone is rolled away, and the guards are in no shape to oppose the women from looking in the tomb. Now, a quick question. Do the women see the angel descend and roll away the stone? It sounds like it in Matthew's order here in, in, in Mark and, and, and Luke, um, it appears that when they, they arrive at the tomb, this has already taken place. And there is no great contradiction here. Often Matthew kind of compresses history, and it's very easy to read this gospel as with verses 3 and 4 as a flashback, um, or rather verses 2 and 3 and 4 as a flashback. The women are on their way to, the, to see the tomb. Meanwhile, while they're on their way, there's an earthquake. The angel descends, rolls back the stone, and the guards fall like dead men. No contradiction between Matthew and the other Gospels. We read in verse 5, The angel said to the women, Do not be afraid, for I know that you seek Jesus who is crucified. He is not here, for he has risen, as he said. Come, see the place where he lay. Then go quickly and tell his disciples that he has risen from the dead, And behold, he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him. See, I have told you. So the angel has two imperatives, two commands for the women. And the first is, do not be afraid. This command, by the way, is what we would call an evangelical imperative. In other words, it's not saying to the women, In order to obey God's holy law, you must stop being afraid right now. And once you overcome your fear, you'll be obeying God. Rather, this is an evangelical imperative or a gospel imperative that delivers what it commands. So when Jesus says to Lazarus, who's dead in the tomb, Lazarus, come forth. That's an evangelical comparative by giving that command Jesus is giving Lazarus life. When the Lord commands in Genesis 1, let there be light, that's an evangelical imperative. It it causes the light that it commands. When the angel here says, do not be afraid, he is delivering the women from fear. He is delivering the unafraidness that they need by giving that command Because he goes on to give the reason for why there's no need to be afraid. I know that you seek Jesus who was crucified. He is not here for he has risen just as he said. There is no need for the women to be afraid because Jesus has fulfilled his promises. He told them beforehand that he would die. He's been saying so since what? Matthew 16 or so. He's told the women and his disciples, his followers, that he would die. And that he would rise again. 
And while they've been so devastated by the events of Good Friday that they've, they've uh, kind of blanked out on the promise of the resurrection, Jesus hasn't forgotten it. And so here, here he is, or here he's not, I guess, because the tomb is empty. He is risen just as he said he would be. He has kept his word. So as further proof that the women need not be afraid, the angel says, come see the place where he lay. So the women came to see the tomb and perhaps prepare the body for burial. But instead, along with the angel's words, they have this first proof of the resurrection. And it's a negative proof, but it's still the first step. And that is that the body isn't there. And we want to note quickly here that this is a bodily resurrection. It is not that Jesus is risen in spirit while his body lies a moldering in the grave. Jesus is risen body and all. And that is significant. When God created Adam and Eve in the garden, he created them to live forever, body and all. And when they fell into sin, the wages of sin brought death to them, body and all. But their bodies were always supposed to be eternally alive. And sin, of course, brought eternal death. So when Jesus dies and rises again, he rises body and all to demonstrate that he has completely conquered the curse of sin, that he has completely conquered the grave, and as evidence that he will raise us from the dead body and all. If Jesus rises from the dead only in spirit and leaves his body behind, then Easter is not a victory. Easter is a tie. If Jesus rises only in spirit, he's saying to the grave, I tell you what, you keep the body, I'll take the spirit, and we'll call it even. Jesus has no interest in calling it a draw with sin, death, and devil. He rises bodily from the dead, announcing total victory over his enemies and declaring to us that he will raise us from the dead, body and all, as well. So the angel's first command to the, the women is, do not be afraid and you know, come and, and see the place where they laid him. And then he tells them a second command. He says, go quickly and tell his disciples that he has risen from the dead. And behold, he is going before you to Galilee, and there you will see him. See, I have told you. So, go quickly and tell his disciples that he is risen from the dead. The eleven, who are currently locked in a room out of fear, the eleven are still Jesus' disciples. And that terminology is pretty significant because the last we heard of the disciples, they were abandoning the Savior left and right, if not betraying him outright, when Jesus was arrested and put on trial and crucified. 
So risen from the dead, Jesus could say, I'm going to shop around for some better disciples than these guys have been. But no, instead, he declares to the women, go tell the 11 that they are still Jesus' followers. Because he has risen from the dead, he's died from their sins and risen again so that they might follow him forever. And then the angel says, tell the disciples that he will meet them in Galilee. You will see him in Galilee. And then the angel adds, see, I have told you. In other words, um, the, the word of God continues to be spoken and God continues to make promises this time through his angel. So the, this, uh, this announcement to the women begins with, Jesus has risen from the dead just as he said. And now through me, he is saying to you, you'll see him in Galilee. All right, so the women have now gotten these two commands from the angel, and we read, So they departed quickly from the tomb with fear and great joy and ran to tell his disciples. Now, quite famously in, in, in the Gospel of Mark, um, Easter morning be, or ends with, uh, with the women departing with fear and trembling and, and telling no one because they are afraid. But um, Matthew picks up from there and says, they might have left the tomb with fear and great joy, but soon they're telling the disciples that he is risen from the dead. But on their way to meet the disciples, Jesus doesn't wait for Galilee. He'll keep that promise. But we read in verse 9, and behold, Jesus met them and said, greetings. And they came up and took hold of his feet and worshiped him. Uh, the word there for greetings is, is literally the imperative rejoice. And this too is an evangelical imperative. It's not, if you want to obey my commands, be joyful right now. Jesus delivers the joy that he commands simply by standing before them. And they come up and take hold of his feet. And that ain't nothing. Because before we had kind of the negative proof of the resurrection of the body that it wasn't in the tomb. But that's not complete proof because it could just mean that the body was taken somewhere else. But now we have the positive proof that Jesus is risen from the dead because he stands before them and he has grabbable feet. He's not just an apparition. He's not just a spirit. But the women can take hold of his feet as they worship him. Finally, Jesus receives proper worship for who he is, the Son of God, the Son of the Most High, the Savior of the world. Way back in Matthew chapter 1, we were told when the angel visited Joseph that he would be Emmanuel, God with us. Now he has died and he has risen from the dead. And before ascending into heaven, he is Emmanuel, God with us, and returned from the grave. And now for you and me, although he is ascended into heaven, he is still Emmanuel, God with us, in his word and his sacraments. So at the end of verse 9, we have the women holding Jesus' feet and worshiping him. 
And Jesus says to them, do not be afraid. This is verse 10. Jesus said to them, do not be afraid. Go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee and there they will see me. Before the angel said to the woman, go tell his disciples. And now Jesus tells them, go tell my brothers to go to Galilee. Jesus ups the ante. Not only are they still his followers, but Jesus calls them his brothers. And a big part of that is to say that Galilee will be a place of, oh, not re-education to be better disciples. Galilee will be a place of reconciliation. When Jesus meets with the eleven, they will not be subject to discipline or punishment, but they will be restored as his family because they are his brothers. But there are a couple of other nuances to Jesus calling his disciples brothers in this text. The other is um, they are, if you will, the patriarchs of the new Israel. In the Old Testament, Abraham fathered Isaac, Isaac fathered Jacob, and Jacob fathered sons who became the patriarchs, the heads of the 12 tribes of Israel, and those are God's chosen people of the Old Testament. And, and by the way, Jacob's sons are a collection of just total clowns and, and, and really not great guys, but God still uses them as, as the patriarchs, the fathers of the tribes of his chosen people, Israel. Now that Jesus is risen from the dead, he is about to, to institute the New Testament church. And the 11, plus Matthias, when he is selected, they will be the patriarchs, the new sons of Jacob, if you will. They will be the patriarchs, the fathers of the new Israel, the church. And so as Jacob's sons, who were brothers to each other, were the patriarchs of old, now the disciples, as Jesus' brothers, are the new patriarchs of the church. It is by their preaching that the people of God start to, um, start to be born and, and multiply, and so this new nation, the church, is, is born. There is one more nuance to Jesus calling them brothers, and that is, I referred to this in, in Matthew 27 last week as, as we talked about uh, the passion of Jesus. When Jesus cries out from the cross, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He's quoting verse 1 of Psalm 22. And Psalm 22 is a remarkable account of the crucifixion back in the time of King David, 500 years before Jesus is born. It runs through various, uh, various pains and wounds that Jesus suffers on the cross. It again describes how Jesus is forsaken by his father. But near the end of that psalm, there's hope. In fact, Psalm 22, verse 22 reads, I will tell of your name to my brothers. In the midst of the congregation, I will praise you. 
That's Jesus speaking through the mouth of David 500 years before his crucifixion. And now he tells the women that Psalm 22, 22 is about to be fulfilled. I will tell of your name to my brothers. He will speak to his disciples and restore them as a people of God in Galilee. What good news. As this lesson begins, as the day is about to dawn, it is still darkness outside. It's still darkness in the heart because there's no hope of the resurrection. But then there's an earthquake and an angel and news and the resurrected Jesus. And there's only joy because he has risen from the dead. And risen again, Christ declares that he will meet his disciples to reconcile with them. And you and I have this Easter joy that because Christ is risen from the dead, he continues to meet with us in his means of grace, his word and his sacraments, in order to be reconciled with us both now and forevermore. And as he is risen from the dead, body and all, so he will raise you from the dead, body and all, that you might live with him in his heavenly kingdom forevermore. What joy. With that, we conclude this quick look at Matthew chapter 28, verses 1 through 10, our gospel reading for Easter Sunday. God grant you every good gift as you meditate upon this text further. God grant you every blessing if you're teaching this to others. And until we visit again, the Lord order your days and your deeds in his peace. Amen.